Well, welcome to the Bridge Online Services. Uh, we intend to continue online services even though this weekend we have our, our uh, practice service and next weekend we begin in-person services at our site in uh, Barrington Hills. And um, we would love to continue to meet with you online. We expect that many of you will stay home uh, as we ride out this COVID-19, uh, this season, this pandemic together. Uh, so there will be two options for you really to, to meet with us, both online, we'll continue that, and, uh, and in person going forward. Um, this week, we continue our study in Luke and look at the importance of prayer and how disciples must pray. Uh, I look back at my life and the things that God has done in my life, and most of the significant moments in my life were in the context of prayer. Choosing to, uh, to become engaged was uh, something I prayed fervently about and, uh, and what, what that would mean for me, and that changed the way that I thought about marriage and uh, the way that we began our marriage. Uh, being called into ministry, uh, there are moments in, in my spiritual life where uh, God makes a change in my life or tells me something significant. And almost always, as I look back, those are in the context of prayer. I've told you stories about talking with God while driving and him nudging me to pull over and, and, and then he has something important for me to say or I'm off walking and praying and then when I get back from that, God moves and I go back out to pray again. Uh, there, is, uh, there are moments in my life where God has moved mightily and that is what um, Jesus has modeled for us throughout Luke. Uh, it is in the context of prayer uh, that he is baptized and the Father uh, descends and says, this is my son. It is in the context of prayer that he chooses his disciples. It is in the context of prayer that he announces the passion in Luke. It is in the context of prayer that the transfiguration happens. Uh, again and again, Jesus is going off to pray and God works significantly in the context of prayer. And uh, at the same time, I have admitted to you uh, in the past that I struggle with my prayer life and I struggle with making time or finding myself too busy to spend significant time in prayer. And uh, it is one of those things that is remarkable. God moves mightily when I pray and when I'm involved in continuously praying with him. And, uh, and yet I find myself going seasons without praying much or not praying enough. And uh, it is something that is remarkable. Well, today the disciples come to Jesus and ask Jesus, teach us to pray. Uh, and, uh, G and Jesus then talks about how the disciples must be committed to prayer. Our passage is found in Luke chapter 11, and uh, it is the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 11, and we will begin by, by reading Luke 11, 1 through 4. Uh, Luke 11, 1 through 4. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Uh, this first section I've entitled The Pattern of the Disciples' Prayer. The Pattern of the Disciples' Prayer. Uh, Jesus is asked by the disciples while he's praying in a certain place, teach us to pray like John has taught his disciples to pray. And 
Jesus teaches them a portion of what we have now come to know as the Lord's Prayer. And really, it's not so much the Lord's Prayer as it is the disciples' prayer. It's the pattern that Jesus gives for disciples to pray. He begins in his prayer and responding, saying, Father, hallowed be your name. Father is a term of endearment. Father is a term of of, uh, affection. Father is a term of intimate knowledge and intimate connection and and the covenant relationship. It implies uh, personal. It implies a connection that is different than how other people approached gods in the first century. We have grown comfortable with saying, Oh, Heavenly Father, or Our Father who art in heaven. Those are terms that we've grown comfortable with. But the facts are that uh, in the first century, that was not common. In the first century, you talked to gods as if you were afraid of them. People would pray to the gods of their different religions as if they were annoyed with them, as if they get it wrong, that somehow if they didn't approach them with this deep respect, that they would be smitten or that they at least would not be received, they would not be received or even heard. Um, In this prayer, Jesus again models the personal nature of our relationship with God by beginning Father. Father, hallowed be your name. May your name be praised. May your name be sanctified. God, in this, uh, in this passage, it, it counters the term Father. Father is personal. Father is a term of affection. Father is a, pictures us crying out to our heavenly daddy. And then he says, hallowed be your name or sanctify your name. And what does he mean by that? As those bookends match what our response to God is, it is both personal, but it is also reverential. But at the same time, he's asking God to praise his name or sanctify his name or raise up his name. And it occurred to me as as I was thinking about it that that's what we see in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, who is writing from uh, the shores of uh, of Babylon, the city up against the river, and, and here is Ezekiel, and he is experiencing uh, the judgment of God. He writes about, he prophesies about how God views the honor that his name is due. It says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. In this passage, in Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23, we see God declaring that I am going to vindicate my name. I am going to make my name holy. I am going to raise up my names before the nations through my people. And as we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We pray that God would sanctify his name, that God would raise up his name among us and in the church, that in his people, God's name would be lifted high. This is such an important piece of the prayer that we understand that it is our job to raise up God's name. Why? Is it that God needs to have us raise up his name? God doesn't need us to 
hallow his name or raise up his name. He wants his name to be great among the nations because he is the source of salvation among the nations. He is the source of good things among the nations. He wants people to look at the church and see that it is God's whose name is great. It's not the people and what they've accomplished or the pastor and what he's accomplished. It's not the great preaching or the, the great online presence, but it's the power of God and the presence of God. And it's his great name in the church that should be praised. And as we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, we are saying, make your name great in the church. Make your name great in my life. Make your name great among your people just as you promised to in Ezekiel. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. This is a de declaration about the, the presence and the power and the reign of God on earth. That where God is reigning, there is life, there is love, there is joy, there is peace, there is freedom, there is this ability to become who we were meant to be and all of the creation becomes what it was meant to be. It is the redeeming of all things where God reigns. And as we pray for God's reign, for his kingdom to come, we are also recognizing that that means we will submit to that reign. Your kingdom come in my heart. Your kingdom come in my life. Your kingdom come in my church. Your kingdom come in my home. Your kingdom come in this generation. This is how Jesus is teaching us to pray. He's teaching us to refer to our Father with, with all of the, pro, the, the, the confidence and, and a certainty that he loves us and he, and he has a, a heavenly affection for us and, and wants us to come to him. Father, hallowed be your name. May his name be lifted high in our lives. May we have a reverential hearts before him and reverential lives. May the church make his name great and may God make his name great among us. Give, it says, your kingdom come. That means that we are looking for his reign in our lives and are accepting his reign in our lives and are praying for him, praying that he would lead us and that he would guide us and that he would be Lord and that he would be king. Give us each day our daily bread. This prayer is a is the statement is a prayer where Jesus is saying it is right for us to pray for our daily needs. And in the first century, that would have been more necessary, especially for these disciples. They were told to leave without uh, the preparations and of having enough money or enough food to make it. They were expected to look to God for their daily bread. I can tell you that in America, I don't know what this is like. Give us this day our daily bread does not rightly to apply to make sure I have a second car or make sure I have a home where all of my children can have their own bedroom or make sure that my kitchen is big enough that all of my family can gather in it. That's not daily bread. Daily bread is about the sustenance that God brings daily and it for us it is better fit to talk about the spiritual bread that God gives us. That we daily need his presence. Give us this day our spiritual food. We have plenty in America. But that doesn't mean that uh, we aren't challenged in the issue of daily bread. The way that we are challenged, the way that I am challenged, is that I can think I don't need God for my daily bread. Don't you know it is God who has given us plenty and he can take it away? Don't you know that it is God that has provided our food for us and he can cease providing for it? 
we should be continuing to pray, give us each day our daily bread. And we should give thanks when we have plenty and we should recognize that we are given plenty with a purpose to care for others and to care for those around the world who need it. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And forgive us our sins. Jesus has now said this. He said it in Matthew when he gave the example of prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. And now here in Luke, he ties our forgiveness to the forgiveness that we're giving to others. And as his disciples, we are to mimic our Father. So we aren't praying, you know, forgive us eternally. Uh, if we forgive others, no, we are in, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and our forgiveness is certain and it's sure. It's, we can be confident in that. But on a regular basis, we ask for this unhindered relationship with God and we pray that he would forgive us our sins and restore us to a right relationship, an unhindered relationship, a filling of the Holy Spirit we'll see by the end of this passage. And as we pray for that, the expectation is, is that we would be taking that forgiveness and passing it on, taking the love we receive and passing it on. This is a mark of being a disciple and we should pray, forgive us, Father, restore us as we forgive others and restore them. And lead us not into temptation. And lead us not into temptation. And this is where the passage ends in regards to the pattern of the disciples' prayer. Lead us not into temptation. And we know that it isn't Jesus, it isn't God the Father who tempts us. From James chapter 1, we know that God never tempts anyone. He has nothing to do with evil. What does this mean? Lead us not into temptation. It means that God is blocking for us all the time. God is pr protecting us all the time. In Romans chapter 1, when we went through Romans, we saw how God is holding us back and, and keeping us safe. And, and yet in our sin, we cry out, let us go. And he lets go and lets us go into our sin. Lead us not in temptation is asking him to continue that pattern of protection where we are not put in a position where we would fail or not put in a position where we wander. We are prone to wander and we are prone to even want God to let us wander. And this prayer is declaring at the beginning of the day, God, don't let me wander. Even if my heart is suspect, I'm asking verbally, I'm telling, I'm saying, I'm declaring out loud, lead me in a different path. Even if my heart wants to go down the path of temptation. That's what James chapter 1 ultimately declares. That temptation comes from within us. From the evil that's within us that wants to sin. This prayer declares, no God, I want my heart to be aligned with your desire for me to not come into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Well, Jesus begins by giving the disciples a pattern for prayer. And as he moves on in, in a couple of really perplexing parables, he's going to take us through the perceptive perspective of the disciples' prayer and the promise of the disciples' prayer. First, the perspective of the disciples' prayer. In five, verses 5 through 8, it says, And he said to them, Which of you has a friend, uh, has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. 
I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Well, this is hard for us to understand in the 21st century. Uh, I have never gone over to my neighbors at midnight and knocked on the door and asked for bread because I have a friend that's come over with the expectation that they would extend hospitality. But actually, in the first century, this would have been read with incredulity. Of course the neighbor would get up. The, the idea that the children are sleeping is a lame excuse. That is not the excuse, that is not what's expected of a good neighbor. That's not what's expected of a, a neighborhood that understands that hospitality is the responsibility of the whole town, of the whole tribe, and of the whole neighborhood. If one senses that responsibility and somebody comes at midnight, there's the expectation that righteousness would be that the neighbor would get up and give what was necessary and that, let that be repaid. There is an expectation that if someone comes that bread would be provided. And if that bread is not provided, there is shame on the whole town. There's shame on the whole tribe. And here in this parable, the, the first century Jewish people would have heard that and said, that wouldn't happen, that shouldn't happen. That, that's embarrassing that this guy would say, I'm not gonna get up, I'm not gonna give bread because my children are sleeping because I've fallen asleep. And, and as he says this, he's, he says, lend, lend me three loaves, a loaf for each, and so that it's not giving leftovers because that would have been shameful. A friend has come on a journey and, and he answers from within, I don't want to do this. And even though he doesn't want to do it, he gets up and gives what he should. In verse 8 it says, I tell you though I will, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Because the man is embarrassed that if it's found out that he was unhospitable, because of the peer pressure and the shame, he'll get up and he'll give the bread. Why is Jesus giving this parable? Why, who is God in this? God is the one who is hospitable. God is the one who would get up. He wants people to think rightly about God. You're not bothering him with your prayers. The perceptive, the, the perspective of the disciples' prayer is that God wants us to cry out to him in the middle of the night and in the morning and all day long. He is inviting us to tell us about the problems we have. We're lacking three loaves here. We're running late. We don't know how this meeting is going to go. We don't know how this bill is going to be paid. And he's asking us to cry out to the one who hospitality, he is the author of hospitality. He is the author of love. The comparison is one of somebody who is a miserable neighbor and he's saying, well, how much more would God want you to pray to him? And would God want you to come to him with every one of your needs, great and small? I have been tempted to believe at times, well, that's too small for God. That's, that seems petty. Should I really bother God that, that this has gone wrong, that, that I'm at a church service and my shirt doesn't fit correctly and should I talk to God about that and I'm embarrassed or, or that uh, something has happened where there's a stain on my clothes or I'm running late and I've hit three red lights in a row or I haven't got the, I burned the food on the grill and I have people coming over, whatever it is, should I talk to God about those things or are those petty? 
This passage, the perspective of the disciples' prayer is Jesus saying God wants you to cry out to him early and late about the loaves and about everything, about the glory of his name and about your daily bread, about how you need a father and that connection and how you reverence him and hold him in high regard and want your neighbors to do so also. The pattern of the disciples' prayer is one of of knowing your Father, of intimacy, of reverence, of, of understanding that God is great and we aren't. And he has adopted us as his children. The perspective of the disciples' prayer is that we are not bothering him when we pray. When we come to him and pray as we should, and then uh, there is nothing hindering that prayer because the Father himself wants to hear from us and wants to pour out his good things on us. And that's the promise of the disciples' prayer in verse 9 through 13. In verse 9 through 13, it says, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. For what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead um, of a fish give him a serpent? And if he asks for an egg, Will he give him a scorpion? And if then who are, who are you, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This begins, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Uh, well, that's such an incredible promise. That when we come to him, if we're knocking, he's going to open the door. And if we seek, we're going to find it. And if we ask, we're going to be given. And I think of all of the things that I'm asked, and there are times that God has said no. I have asked God for things that I have not gotten. I have asked God for things, and he's asked me to wait. I have talked to God about things. And, you know, like I gave the example earlier about running late and hitting red lights. Sometimes when I pray, the next light is red. And is that an answer from God? Absolutely it's an answer from God. And the answer is, be more responsible. Be, you know, take care and, and love people by being on time. That's the answer. The, the messes that I make, sometimes God, sometime God leaves me in them and doesn't save me from them. So what does he mean when he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Well, he goes on to explain what he means. Right here in the passage. Does that mean that God is a great vending machine in the sky and that we can ask him for anything and if we want someone to be healthy, he will make them healthy and if he, we, he wants COVID to end, we want COVID to end, all we need to do is pray and COVID will end. If we just ask him for healing, he'll give it? The answer is no, that's not at all what this passage says. He goes on to explain it. He says, I will ask, ask and you will see, be, uh, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. Verse 11, what father among you if a son asks for a fish will instead of fish give him a serpent or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion? God your father, God my father knows what's best for us. And sometimes what we ask for is not in our best interests. Kids, pay attention to this. Young adults, pay attention to this. You may say to your parents, why can't I stay on the internet late at night? 
And you don't know, maybe, that the internet has evil in it that could capture your heart for the rest of your life. Why can't I just watch TV as much as I want? Why do I have to do my homework? Why do I have to eat my peas? Why, Father on earth and Mother on earth, are you asking me to do things that are good for me when I would rather do things that are bad for me? From the time that the three-year-old in the, in the store begins to cry, I want that candy bar, they're asking and the parent is saying no. You can't have that candy bite right now. You'll ruin your dinner. And if parents know how to give children good gifts, how much more our Heavenly Father. And in really a, a, a bizarre story, same like the first one. The first one was supposed to, in the first century, you know, be a slap in the face. No one would turn someone away at midnight that came by in friendship and asked for bread if they had it to give. The comparison I read in one spot for that one is if someone came by and their, their, their wife was in, birth, in, in the process of giving birth and they needed to get to the hospital and their car wasn't working and they needed the keys for your car and you cried out and said, you know, I'm in bed. I don't want to wake the kids. Good luck to you. That's, no one would do that. Of course you would drive them to the hospital or give them the keys for your car to get to the hospital. And this is the same situation of shock where he says that uh, the father, what father among you, when a son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? He doesn't, we as humans who are flawed and, and failures as neighbors and failures as parents in so many ways, none of us would ever consider that. Why, we, why do we think God is out to get us? Why do we think God is waiting to not give us what, he want, what we need? And why do you think he would give us something that wasn't for our good? I don't know how many people have asked to win the lottery. They play the lottery and they ask God, hey, just this would solve everything. And God the Father knows, no, it won't. <laughs> it won't solve much of anything. If it isn't what's good for you or your family and this doesn't turn out well, if it did, he would give it to us because our Father knows how to give us good gifts. We pray that life would continue and that we wouldn't lose our loved ones, but God knows that life on this earth is not the finish line and that he doesn't want this life to last forever for us and that there are rewards to be given out for those of us who suffer on earth. And we suffer now, but that is just a short time and the time when redemption is coming and he is giving us good gifts that are eternal gifts right now. So as we ask and as we seek and as we knock, God is opening the right doors and God is answering the right things and he is giving his very presence to us when we seek. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I love this last verse in verse 13. Uh, it says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, he answers what it is that we are asking ultimately for and seeking ultimately and knocking for ultimately is the Holy Spirit and the very presence of God. And that's the gift that he gives freely to all of us who ask and seek and knock. We are going after a right relationship with God and prayer is the context of that right relationship. And he answers this context of, he says, teach, they, they go back to the very beginning, Lord, teach us to pray. Well, you can pray to him as Father and actually sanctify his name and, and, and lift up his name 
among the nations, in the church and in your life and in your home because he gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power of God within us. That's what he says in verse 13. The ultimate answer to our prayers is the Holy Spirit and God doesn't withhold that from us, his children. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Dear friends, the Holy Spirit is given freely to us, and in that we have our power, we have the very character of Christ. The church flourishes with the Spirit. Jesus was asked, how is it that we are to pray? Well, we are to pray in concert and in the context of the will of God. That doesn't mean we aren't going to pray about running late or food or our bills or the illnesses in our land or the difficulties of our times or our church and, and our daily needs. That's, we, we pray for those things. But ultimately, what God is doing is filling us with his Holy Spirit and changing us to the character of Christ and in calling us into the cause of Christ. And he does that through the power of his spirit and causes his name to be great in our stories and in our churches. When Jesus was asked, oh, teach us to pray, uh, he gave a view of prayer that was remarkable. Dear friends, we are called to pray as his disciples. And he gives us a pattern of prayer he gives us the perspective of prayer and he gives us the promise of prayer. And the promise of prayer is the Holy Spirit in us, thriving, being filled with the Spirit as we pray. And God works powerfully in our stories. Won't you join me as we turn our hearts to prayer now? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that we can come into your presence with confidence. Thank you that you love us and you wanna be in our presence. Thank you that your name is great in all the earth, that you have done wonderful things. And thank you that you are good and your purposes are good. Thank you that you forgive. Thank you that you love. Thank you that you bring peace. Thank you that you bring hope. And Father, I pray as your children that we would be about your business, that we would seek the things that you want to give us and that we would ask for the things that would bring about your good purposes and that we would knock on the door that you would come in and dwell with us by the power of your spirit and bring about your good purposes through us. May you bring power in the church again. And may you bring power and your presence in our lives again. In Jesus' name, amen.